You're huddling up for warmth, if nothing else. We're in 2 Samuel uh, 24 today. It's the last chapter in 2 Samuel. We will finish it today if it kills you. I mean, if it kills me. Sorry, didn't mean to sacrifice you. Uh, And next week, uh, Brother Chuck will start us in James. James is where we'll go next. This is the last chapter with regard to King David. It's the last phase of his kingship and rule, and you'll see some interesting things in it. Here's how the text begins, verse 1. Now, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. It's not with reference to a new violation that we read the Lord's anger burned again. This is a reflection on a pre- back on a, previ- a previous time in which Israel sinned. It was in chapter 21. I'll read this to you just to refresh your memory. There was famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It's for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. King Saul committed a terrible transgression. As a penalty, there was famine in the land. Uh, It was introduced in chapter 21. Then we had intervening chapters, 22 and 23, where no mention of that was given because other things took place. So now when the text says, again, it's as if the Lord is saying, let me refresh your memory again about what I introduced to you in 21. There was this violation as a result of which the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And the text says, uh, And he, God, moved David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Take a census. Soon I'll tell you why this census was not a good idea. In fact, a a sinful thing to do. But here's the difficult, kind of mysterious thing. There was sin in the land, and so God's anger is kindled. And it says God moved or incited David to do that which soon you will see did not meet with God's approval. Uh, It's as if God incited David to sin. But this can't be right because of passages like this one in James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted and being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. We cannot, therefore, attribute David's sin to God, and yet the verse seems to indicate that it was God who moved David to sin. However, there is a parallel passage to what we're reading here something that comes alongside 2 Samuel 24 that basically gives a report of the same incident recorded here. And that parallel passage is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And this is what it says there in verse 1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Ah, so the parallel account of this same incident says Satan is the one who tempted David to do that, which you'll soon see is sinful, not God. So which is it? Is it God or Satan who uh, moved David to sin? Well, the answer is it was sovereign God who allowed Satan, a subordinate creaturely being, to do something which sovereign God would then use to discipline Israel for her wrongdoing. So this concept emerges, the sovereignty of God. There's no space that either we or Satan could occupy free of the sovereignty of God. Nothing happens without God's knowledge and authorization. Even the evil working of Satan are things permitted by God for God's ultimate good purposes. Satan doesn't know this. We have a hard time realizing it. But we want to recognize Satan, yet not give him undue credit. He's only a creaturely being, and our worship is given to the only one who is sovereign and fully in control. And so this account gives us another example of how God can allow Satan to work 
and ply his evil ministrations, and yet a sovereign God use it really to accomplish his ultimate purposes. So that's kind of what's happening. Now, verse 2, the king, that's David, said to Joab, commander of the army who was with him, he said, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. So uh, last week I forgot my cool little device, and as a result... I missed an opportunity to use it, and so I had a, I had a really bad week. It was just terrible. But I got it today. And so uh, this expression, Dan to Beersheba, you see it in the Bible quite a lot. It simply means the entirety of the land from north to south. So you see Dan, see it up there in the north? All the way down there to Beersheba. From Dan to Beersheba. The length and breadth of the, of the land, from Dan to Beersheba, the entirety of Israel. David said, I want you, Joab, to go out and conduct a census of the people uh, covering everything, uh, everyone in the land we possess, from Dan to Beersheba. Hey, just for some fun, would you like to guess at the distance in miles from Dan to Beersheba? This is all of Israel. Holy moly, 150 is what it is. Exactly. Did you come up with that, brother? Oh. But I still think you should be rewarded for having listened. Okay, great. Really good. So that's what it is, 150. There's nothing to it. It's a dinky country. Okay, Dan to Beersheba. David says, go do this and register the people. Why? that I may know the number of the people. Okay, so he authorizes a census to be taken. However, verse 3, this is interesting. Joab said to the king, now may the king, the Lord, uh, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see. See, David's getting older now. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab, not a very godly man, seemed to have some Godly insight here. He perceives that the census is not a good idea. So he very tactfully, respectfully counsels King David against it. He said, I wish you well. I mean, may the Lord add to your numbers like a hundredfold. But don't do this thing. He counsels against it. Does David listen? Nah, he doesn't. Verse 4. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, not just his word and against the commanders of the army. Not good. This happens sometimes to leaders. They don't listen to counsel. Sometimes, particularly during the last phase of their leadership, they don't. They just draw in. They know it's the last phase. They don't want to acknowledge it. So they deny counsel. David has a board of advisors. It's not just Joab. It's Joab and the commanders of the army. His key leaders are counseling him in a certain direction. He doesn't listen. And in so doing, he violates an oft-repeated biblical principle found in places like this, Proverbs 11, 14, where there's no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there's victory. Sometimes leaders get ingrown, narcissistic, they don't listen. They hang on tenaciously at the last phase of their leadership and sometimes do crazy things. They make bad decisions. How about this passage? Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Uh, the biblical model is not a one-man show. We don't see that in scriptures. We see leadership hierarchy, but no man is an island, no leader. Everyone is meant for accountability and input because no man is capable alone, single-handedly, to get the job done. So David, in the last phase of his life, is violating some clear biblical principles here. How about this one, Proverbs fifteen twenty-two: Plans fail. For what? For lack of counsel. But with many advisors, they succeed. So David is ingrown. He has this 
notion he wants to count people. Why is he refusing counsel? I think the answer can be summed up in this word, pride, I, right there in the center. We all struggle against it. You know, this is the last phase of his life, his ministry. You think he would be over temptation. No, we never get that way. He had been tempted earlier sexually. Now he's tempted in terms of human pride. This is a big one. In human pride and narcissism, he's essentially saying, I'm the leader. I'll do what I want to do. So what do his subordinates do? Well, they're respectful. So here's what it says. Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. And here's what they do. Verse 5 says they crossed the Jordan. Here goes the magic wand once again. They crossed the Jordan. If you follow the red line, you'll see the direction in which they traveled to do the census. They start right there in Jerusalem. They go east, east to cross the Jordan River. So they start right over there in Jerusalem, and they're going east. I'll show you something. Two major inland bodies of water in Israel. See this one right there? That's the Sea of Galilee. This one down here, that's the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee right up there, and then the Dead Sea right here. Can you see the Sea of Galilee? is like wider at the top than at the bottom. It's harp-shaped. In fact, the Hebrew word for a harp, see it's a little wider at the top. Uh, the Hebrew word for harp is kinneret, and that's why you read in the Bible, this is also referred to as lake or sea of kinneret, of the harp. It looks like a harp. This is fresh water, lots of fish. This is salt water right there, Dead Sea. In between the two, see this squiggly line here running north to south? That's the Jordan River, runs right here, Jordan River. Listen to the word Jordan. It pertains to Dan. Here's Dan up here. Remember we said Dan to Beersheba? The Jordan starts up there. One of the tributaries uh, of a river up here in Dan. The Jordan flows from Dan all the way down, pours out into the Dead Sea right here. It's a natural dividing line right here, a natural dividing line. So to on this side of it, that's Israel. This side of it today, this is Jordan. Want to know something? Israel has never fully possessed the full extent of the land given to it by God. You know why? Sin. Her sin. There's a spiritual application too. There's not a person here who has fully experienced the fullness of the abundant life given to us by Jesus. Why not? Sin. We don't lose our salvation. We lose the benefits Fullness of blessing thereof when we sin. That's why God hates it. He doesn't hate the one who sins. He hates that sin keeps us from being in full possession of what he wants for us. David? No, David, that's a great question, and we're going to get to it. It's a, it's an excellent question. And it isn't, it isn't so obvious. You wonder what's so wrong about counting people. Well, we'll suggest something in just a second. I wish you would try to be patient for the first time in your life. (laughs) Keep begging. Okay, so the text says they crossed the Jordan and they camped in Arrower. So they're going from Jerusalem. They go right down here. See, Arrower. That's where they camped. They leave Jerusalem. They go here. They're going in a counterclockwise direction, if you notice it, counterclockwise through the land. They camp right there on the north bank of a river called the Arnon River. From there, the text says, they proceed further uh, north, and um, they go to a place called Jazer. Jazer. See it right here? Jazer. See how they're going? Jerusalem, Arrower. They're going through all the land that was theirs in that day. They go up here to Jazer. They leave Jerusalem. They go down here to Arrower. They go up to Jazer. See this area right here? It says Ammon right there. That's, uh, that's where the modern uh, capital of today's capital of Jordan is, Amman, Jordan. Amman, Jordan. That used to be Israelite territory. Not only was this land now uh, Jordan belonging to Israel, but up here. We'll talk about in a second. Tyre and Sidon. That's, uh, that, this was Israeli land. 
It's now Lebanon right now. You don't forfeit your salvation, but you can sure forfeit the blessings thereof. Israel's an example of it. Okay, so they keep going, and they go from Jezer, and it says they go up to Gilead. Gilead. Gilead is not a, a town. It's an area, elevated, kind of mountainous area right here. You know what another name for Gilead is? The Golan Heights. That's the Golan Heights. So uh, one of our members was asking me to comment on it. Golan Heights is in the news, you know. Our government, President Trump, uh, decided uh, to recognize Israel's right to the Golan Heights. They've been considered occupiers of the land up until now, and now uh, he's decided to recognize it to be a legitimate part of Israel. So it always was. From way back when, this is the land of Gilead. It was Israel's. It has become Syria. Syria, 1967 and 73. From the Golan Heights, Israel was attacked. For many years, it's an elevated area. So people down below along the Sea of Galilee here, uh, they would have armament rained down upon them with absolutely no protection. It's a military principle. You have the high ground. You have an advantage, for crying out loud. So then Israel was attacked in those two wars, 67, Six-Day War. 73, the Yom Kippur War. Uh, Israel didn't win. God gave Israel the victory both times. And as a result, Israel uh, came to be back in possession of the land, which is her part of it, her ancient holy land, the Golan Heights, Syria, the Arab world. The entire world put, has put pressure on Israel to give it back. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, because uh, there are not kind and peaceful intentions uh, by the Syrians. You know, the Syrian leader is nuts in the, in the head. Bashar al-Assad is just a demon-possessed crazy man who kills his own people, let alone Jews. You kidding me? He wants to run him into the sea. You can't get back to Golan Heights. While Syria had possession of the Golan Heights, you know what they used it for? Nothing except to fire down upon the farmers in the valley below. Now, if you go to the Golan Heights, what do you see? Tremendous agriculture, vineyards. I know that's wasted on us, <laughs> but, I mean, they're quite beautiful. Uh, they made the land. It's a residential area and all the rest. So uh, that's the Golan, the Golan Heights. Crazy to demand Israel to give it back. You know what's like unto it? We should give back Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California to Mexico. We took it. You think that's going to happen anytime soon? I mean, California wouldn't be much of a loss. You could have it. So it's just crazy. Uh, anyway, that's the Golan Heights. So the, so the census takers are traveling right through Gilead. And look, they get up to a place... Well, we're talking about it, Dan. In the text at hand, it's called Dan Ja'al, something like that, which is another way of saying Dan. Some here have been there. It's called today Tell Dan, Tell Dan. And uh, it's quite an interesting archaeological site. So they're traveling to Dan, and then they go this way. The text tells us to, uh, to Sidon, Sidon, or Sidon. See up here? It used to be Phoenician territory, Sidon. This modern-day... Lebanon. Then they came down to Tyre, Tyre, Tyre and Sidon right here. And they're going all the way south. Look at this, all the way south. Oh, look, I'm cutting out this side of the room. They're going all the way south to Beersheba. From here, from Tyre and Sidon, they go all the way down here to Beersheba. Beersheba is in a desert, the Negev Desert. Beersheba, quite significant. You read about it in Genesis during the times of Abraham. So they're taking the census, and when they finish there at Beersheba, they proceed back to Jerusalem, back up north where they started. They had gone in a counterclockwise direction, covered the whole land. Now they finish back in Jerusalem. From Beersheba, they go back up here to Jerusalem, and they finish their census taking. You know how long it took? How do you know that? Way to go, Bible readers. It says right there, you don't have to guess about it. At the end of nine months and 20 days. Why does it say that? I'm just guessing. 
I think one of the reasons it says that is for us to see that God gave David almost 10 months to repent. Soon David will see why what he did was the wrong thing. For now, just accept it. What he did was the wrong thing, and God gave him 10 months to realize it. All he had to do was change his mind. That means repent and thus avoid God's loving, but you'll see, harsh discipline. In fact, to help him, God even gave him wise counsel from Joab and all the military commanders, and yet he wouldn't listen to any of them. Why not? Well, this terrible, dirty word again, pride. That's a problem. And so what happened in verse 9 now, Joab gives him the results of the census, and he tells him there were numbered in Israel 800,000 who? People? Nope. Valiant men who drew the sword. So now, folks, we're getting a little closer to why what David did was wrong. And also, men of Judah, 500,000. David didn't want all the people counted, just his mighty fighting men. Why? Well, towards the end of his life, he's probably reflecting. He's trying to hang on, and it looks like his pride got the best of him. And he wants to number his resources. Forget about the glory of God who gave him all the victory. It's numbers, numbers, numbers. My fighting men, who would dare challenge me, David? That seems to be the violation, not that it was a census. Now, I got to tell you this. In the interest of fairness, the numbers reported in verse 9 are different than the numbers reported in the parallel account in First Chronicles. In First Chronicles, the numbers are 300,000 more than those reported here. How do you account for it? Um, is that a scribal error? We talked about that last week. No, it is not. This is what's called an apparent discrepancy. It looks like the two accounts are discrepant until you subject them to further study and you find out they're not discrepant at all. I'm not going to take class time to do it. Um, you have to trust me, however... The 300,000 men discrepancy between the two accounts is easily resolvable, but not so easy to communicate. It gets a little complicated. If you're interested, I'll send you some information uh, on it. The only reason I bring it to your attention is some will say, that Bible you Christians rely on is filled with errors. This is one they'll point to. Listen, if this is the only, let me ask you a question. The fact that the numbers differ in Second Samuel and First Chronicles, does that, does that shake your faith in Jesus? I mean, that's the point, folks. The only, they're called variants in the Bible, are usually numerical. I spoke about this last time. No major point of doctrine is challenged in any way. And so this is an example of that. So David has all his fighting men numbered, and he realizes this was a bad deal. Look, verse 10. David's heart troubled him. After he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So what, to be specific, is the sin that David committed and and he is now so troubled by? Folks, it was the census he took. It actually came to be David's greatest sin. This is a guy who committed sin with Bathsheba. But you'll see this one is even... More serious than that, why? I mean, taking censuses was not prohibited in ancient Israel. In fact, God oftentimes commanded that the people be numbered. I mean, have you heard of the book of Numbers? So, so it's not that there's something inherently wrong with taking a census. You know what was wrong? David's attitude. I will take an inventory of my might, my strength, my resources. Who would dare challenge me? Someone has kind of written a bit of a paraphrase on verse 10. Here it is. Then David prayed, I have sinned badly in what I have just done, substituting statistics for trust. That's the sin. Forgive my sin, says he. I've been really stupid. It's not the numbers. It's what the numbers represented. What it represented to David was independence and autonomy from God. I don't need God. To God be the glory? No, to David be the glory. 
No, God cannot let that sin go unchecked for he will not give his glory to another. In spite of all this, in light of all this, how could it be said that David is a man after God's own heart? He's referred to that way. Let me suggest this. Though it is undeniable that David fell into sin on a number of occasions, his sinful heart always had room for the merciful gracious and forgiving heart of God. David made no excuse about his sin. When convicted of it, he repented of it, threw himself upon the grace and mercy of God. And in that way, he acted like a man after God's own heart, not because he was sin-free, none of us are, but because he realized God's grace with regard to his sin. This is a big balance, a battle for us, again, because of human pride. Oh, God, you can never forgive me until I exact some penalty upon myself. That's human pride. David didn't try to do that. David didn't offer himself as a sacrifice. David realized God was merciful and would forgive him. And as a result, he's referred to, in spite of his sin, as a man after God's own heart. So verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. Now, that's not Emery Gad. You know Emery? There's no way this is him. Forget it. That would be an error in the Bible. No way. So God used it. He's also called the seer. God used this guy Gad to communicate to David. Here's what he said. Verse 12. Go and speak to David. Thus Thus the Lord says, I'm offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them which I will do to you. Highly unusual. We don't see this anywhere else in Scripture, to my knowledge. David sinned. He will be forgiven, but there's a consequence for it. And God's going to let David choose the consequence. He's going to offer him three options. David gets to choose the one. I don't understand what's behind it. I'm just reading what it says. Here's the first option. Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Now, Do you have a Bible that doesn't say seven years of famine, says three years of famine? Yes, so there you go. Another variant in the Bible. The parallel account, Chronicles, offers three years of famine, not seven. How do we account for this? Copyists' error. It's one of the variants in the course of scribal transmission from one uh, one manuscript to another. The inscription was done differently, some seven, some three. I want to ask you a question. The fact that there's an inexplicable discrepancy between whether it's seven years of famine or three years, does that shake your faith in the Lord Jesus? I mean, that's my point. Let's be honest. There are variants in the text, but no major point of doctrine is in any way challenged or threatened. I happen to believe it was three years of famine, not seven For no good reason, except that the next two numerical periods of time are also threes, three months and three days. I don't know what the answer is, and it doesn't bother me much. Anyway, option one, seven or three years of famine. Option two, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Option three, Or shall there be three days pestilence? A pestilence is a plague, maybe an outpouring of some disease. Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So God permitted David to choose his own discipline. So here's what he did, verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Here's what he says. Please, Let us now fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great. That's why David's called the man after God's own heart. He knew of the greatness of his sins, but he knew of the surpassing greatness of God's grace and mercy. I don't want to fall into the hands of man because man will never have mercy. God will. I accept the consequence of my sin. I accept the discipline, but I throw myself gladly upon the mercy of God. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. That's what he says. Mercy. In the Hebrew, it's such a good word. 
It means the kind of attitude a mother has for a child. I know we speak of Father God, but he also has uh, the merciful heart of a mother. At what point does a loving mother ever cease being merciful with reference to her kids, even as they grow older? Even if they're wayward, even if they're troubled, please tell me. Give me the statute of limitations on the mercy that emanates from a mother's heart. It doesn't. It doesn't. That's the concept here. I offer this because I know there are some in this room probably who have sinned against God. Christians have sinned against God, but you've not done what David did yet because you don't get the mercy of God. You're enveloped. You should be. You're enveloped by the seriousness of your sin. I'm not minimizing it, but you think your sin is greater than God's grace. So all it's doing is keeping you needlessly apart from him. When you can repent, as David did, you could agree with God it is sin, and you could say, and thank you for bestowing upon me your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. I wish now to be restored to a right relationship with you. Let's walk through life together again. When a man or woman does that in spite of sin, that one is a man or woman after God's own heart. Otherwise, you're consumed by your own hardened, sinful heart. That's pride. No, we're to be consumed by God's mothering, merciful heart. That's what softens our hard heart. Not fear of penalty. No, no, that just makes us harder. So anyway, this is what David opts for. And verse 15 furthermore says, So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And look at this. 70,000 men of the people uh, from Dan to Beersheba died. David's sin of pride seems to be more serious than David's sexual sin. We know about his sin with Bathsheba, and there were consequences, and people died. But here, 70,000? This is the most difficult infraction of the rules, pride. It's probably likely that there are fewer adulterers and murderers in here than there are those who have committed sins of pride. See, this is at the root of all things. Pride says, I. Pride enthrones I on the throne of our life and dethrones God. No, loving God can't allow that to happen. No, we can't be on the throne of our lives. We'll mess them up. We cannot do it. Sin of pride. So verse 16, when the angel, God used an angel to impose this pestilence on the people. When, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem. So now he's going to inflict the population of Jerusalem with this plague to destroy it. Well, then the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough. David was right. When will Satan, our enemy, ever say, I've hurt you, I've pained you, I've tempted you, boom, 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 but it is enough. No, because he's not merciful. (laughs) Don't you see? Mercy resides with our God, not with Satan. David made the right decision. I'm deserving of a penalty. I know what I've done, but I would rather throw myself upon the mercy of God. I trust you, O God. And here it says, it is enough. Relax your hand, God says to the angel of death. And the angel of the Lord at the time was by the threshing floor of a man named Aruna, who was a Jebusite. Interesting that that would be inserted there. What's the deal? Well, uh, this Jebusite was one of the natives of the land. A Jebusite is is a subgroup of Canaanites. Jebus is the place where David established his palace, his kingdom. Jebus has become Jerusalem. This man had a threshing floor. What's that? Well, it probably looks something like this. A threshing floor is a, uh, it's a hard, flat surface where wheat is crushed to separate the kernels from the straw. 
Aruna, by the way, he's referred to as Ornan in the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 3. He owned this threshing floor. This is where this angel was located at the time. And, verse 17, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people. And he said, behold, it is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, he's not speaking about four-legged sheep. He's speaking about people, the Israelites. These sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Here he's referring to his immediate family. That makes sense. David felt a sense of personal responsibility. I've sinned. Why are the people victimized? Well, that's because David didn't understand the ramifications of sin. Neither do you and I. You know what we think? If I can sin when the lights are out and no one's around, I pull it off. We underestimate sin. It has ramifications of a spiritual kind we, we don't even know of. <clears throat> Two consenting adults in the privacy of their bedroom, whose business is it? Hey, man, we're connected. Sin pollutes the land. Didn't Israel's day? It does now. That's why God hates it. He doesn't hate the sinner. For God so loved the world that he gave. But he hates sin because he understands its ramifications. You know what I think happens? If you're a parent and you sin, you just put a curse on your kids. It affects the kids. You say, what do you mean? They don't even know about it. Nah, don't be so naive. God will not be mocked. It's visited upon them. Hence, be like David. You can't be sinless. Repent of it. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. But there's another thing to keep in mind here, even though David rightly is saying, why should all these people have been penalized for my sin? Well, they weren't. They were being penalized for their own. God was using all this <laughs> to discipline Israel for what we read about way back in 2 Samuel 21. Again, this is sovereign God. Satan's involved. David's involved. Nah, nothing's happening without sovereign God being involved. So that's kind of what's going down here. So verse 18. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So now we're back to this little piece of real estate the angel uh, excuse me the prophet of god named gad (laughs) tells david erect an altar it's an altar of sacrifice on this very site threshing floor of aruna so here it is just to give you an idea what we're talking about right here this whole thing is jerusalem today this area is was jebus this is where david set up his city it's called the city of david he put his palace here This was the administrative capital of the land. You can go there today and see the ruins of the city of David. Some of you have been there. I'm not making this up. And then just literally a few steps to the north of it, up in direction and elevation, you go up this hill, and you see this area right here? That is the threshing floor of Aruna right there. But it's something else. It's Mount Moriah. That's where Abram, Abraham was asked by God to bring his son, his only son, Isaac, to offer him a sacrifice. Never happened because God provided the lamb. Not only is it the site on which Abram offered Isaac in sacrifice, you already have mentioned it, it's the site of the construction of a special building. What is it? The temple. And who built it? And Solomon was whose son? David's son, look at the grace and mercy of God. Repent of sin. God will not be through with you nor your family. Take the curse off them. Take back the ground. David's son. David, the adulterer, the murderer, the prideful guy, his son is the one God chooses to erect the temple. So now I'm going to uh, depart a little bit from the I'm not departing. I want to say something that I think is built on what we're just looking at now. Uh, You are entitled to your feelings. 
but you are not entitled to abuse of facts. Your feelings should not be challenged. But if you're misusing facts or distorting facts, you can be challenged. So, you may have feelings about a particular people group, in this case, the Jews. You may have feelings. Okay. We can still be friends. If you have negative feelings about the Jews, we can still be friends. Not close, but okay. (laughs) It's a free country. Uh, You're entitled to your feelings. You're not entitled to distortion of the facts. Here are some facts. Israel, the Jews, did not take the land in an unauthorized way from anybody else. God told them, supplant the Canaanites and establish your presence in this land. Now, if you have a problem with that, and I can understand that you would, I do too, we take it up with God. I'm not berating the Jews. This was God's mandate. By the way, he can give to whomever he wants, whatever he wants. If you want to challenge him, well, that's a sin of pride. Who do you think you are? So this idea of Israel occupying land not legitimately theirs is simply contrary to fact. This idea of Israel not having a continuous presence in the land, just coming into the land in modern day, land that belongs to the Palestinians. Now, you're entitled to your feelings. You don't have to be pro-Israel or anything. It's a free country. Do what you want to do. I'm not your judge. God is. But you're not entitled to distort the facts. Israel is not occupying land belonging to someone else. Israel did not come to the land in modern days, in 1947 for the first time, for 3,000 stinking years. The Jews have been in this land. And in fact, David, you're going to see in just a couple of verses, bought that land from this guy, Aruna, and it became the site on which the temple of God was built. The first temple by Solomon, the second expanded and renovated by Herod, is the one in which Jesus worshipped. It's, he's going to return to that very, that very place. You can hate Jews. You can do anything you want. I mean, that seems to be the thing today. That's fine. You're entitled to your feelings. You are not entitled to distort historical and biblical fact. Merely on the basis of 2 Samuel 24, I can tell you, Israel has been in that place and possessed it rightfully for 3,000 years. This idea of Israel being a modern-day group of occupiers, what are you talking about? There wasn't even any Palestinian people then. What are you talking about? David established his capital there at Jebus. The temple was erected at what became Jerusalem thousands of years ago. He rightfully purchased it from Jebus, which I'll show you in just a second. Listen, I'm not a political animal, so you can vote for who you want to. It's a free country. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying when I say what President Trump did in moving the embassy, our embassy, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is simply something consistent with historical and biblical fact. Vote for who you want to. I'm not making any political statements over here, although over lunch, man, I'll tell you stuff. (laughs) Over here, we got to be cool. And the world is up in arms over that. He only... He's the first modern-day American president who had the spine to do what is in accord with historical and biblical fact. It is the capital of Israel, for crying out loud. Now, I don't care what you think about him. I don't particularly like him. Good night. He's a crude and coarse guy. I mean, he can use some lessons in graciousness and relationships. I got all that. I got all that. But what he did is simply in accordance with biblical and historical uh, fact. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that Israel is the only country in the world that sovereign nation, not given the right to choose the location of its own capital? What if China and Russia sent us a message? Hey, you people, you've made Washington, D.C. your capital. No way. We're going thumbs down on it. You know what we prideful, arrogant Americans would do? I'm strapping on my 45. Going down to that Chinese restaurant right now. 
Who knows what goofball stuff we would do? Sort of rightly. What sovereign nation doesn't have the right to determine the locale of its capital, save Israel? When President Trump made this decision to simply move our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in recognition that it is Israel's ancient capital, the world community goes berserk. They ought to go berserk because Israel's not allowed to choose its own capital. What are you talking about? This idea of dividing it to make peace. You give away what God gave you, and you have the gall to think there'll be blessing in it? You exchange your birthright for a mess of pottage like Esau did, and you see what hell you bring upon yourself. You compromise your Christianity to make peace with the world? You see if your father blesses that. Israel has no right to give up any bit of the land God has given her, and land for peace as an experiment, has failed. Gaza is an example. Okay, I think I'm okay now. <laughs> so anyway, you're entitled to, to feelings. Please don't misunderstand. But you can't, there's no, there's no free reign on distortion of facts. This is a fact. I'm reading here a fact. I'm not editorializing anything. In fact, you'll see David bought this. Look, look, here it goes on. Verse 19, David went up according to the word of God, just as the Lord had commanded. Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. How could he do that? Because what I'm telling you is true. David is hanging out right here. This is his city. It's the low ground. All he has to do is take a few steps, and they're going up here to the threshing floor of Aruna. And Aruna could simply see him coming. He's got the high ground, you see? By the way, do you know what's on the threshing floor of Aruna today? The Mosque of Omar and the Dome of the Rock, that big golden domed third holiest site in Islam. It will not be there forever. You know how it's going to be removed? I have no idea, no idea, no idea, no idea. I just am looking forward to being there waving goodbye. It's not supposed to be there. That's the site of the first and second temple, and there will be a temple that stands, depending on your eschatology, as I say it, during the 1,000-year earthly reign of Christ on that site, which means the uh, Dome of the Rock has to find another location. Now, I don't think the Muslim people are going to volunteer for that, but I think sovereign God will take care of things. Why? Because the Jews are better than Muslims? I never said that. I refuse to say that. No. Because sovereign God can do what he wants to do with his world, and he's going to. He's spelled out in advance what he's going to do. Jesus will return to that particular site. Anyway, okay, okay. So Aruna sees David coming, and Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Now, verse 21, Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, Well, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be held back from the people. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. He's a good guy. He sees David and he says to David, sacrifice to your God. Okay, that's good. Here's the oxen. I'll give you the animals. Not only that, I'll give you wood for the fire. A threshing sled is made of Wood, heavy boards used in the process of separating the husks from the grain. They were dragged over the wheat that was on the threshing floor. It's wood. A threshing sled is wood. And then also a yoke, just like a wooden collar. You, you know, you, you, you connect two animals together under this yoke or to a load that they're pulling. And so this guy says to David, I got the animals for you for your sacrifice thing, and I got the wood to stoke up the fire. So this is a good deal. Verse 23, everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. So how does David respond? Surprisingly, look, verse 24. However, the king said to Aruna, no, uh, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Ah. See, a sacrifice, by definition, costs. 
David says, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to cheapen this whole deal. Look at here. We don't buy our salvation. That's free. Jesus paid it all. However, when a saved person sins and then repents, I think it's more than just a matter of words. Sorry, God. No, 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 no. When a repentant sinning Christian has in fact repented, um, in order to indicate the sincerity of the repentance, that Christian has to sacrifice certain things like you can't watch pornography on your computer anymore. You can't have a relationship uh, with your secretary anymore. (laughs) You're going to have to sacrifice some stuff. Otherwise, it's not repentance. It's just words. Sorry, God. We'll prove it. Sacrifice costs. You're going to have to discipline. You know what you did now? You have found out what you have done to resolve your pain causes you pleasure. And now you're hooked on it. It's called bondage or an addiction or a stronghold, however you want to look at it. And now you're going to have to really discipline yourself to fight against this thing. You chose it, but now it has you. And you're going to have to say, I dethrone self. I don't have rights to this pleasure outside of your will. Oh, God, I'd rather be miserable and with you than pleasuring myself and separated from you. Well, that's a battle. To get right, back right with God. I didn't say you work for salvation. I said you've got to work to restore the joy of your salvation. That's what David is about here. No, 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 no. I'm paying the price. I'm going to offer a sacrifice that cost me something. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. The parallel account, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 25, says, No, David bought it for 600 shekels. So how do we resolve that? Is it 50 or is it 600? Easily resolvable. The 50 is simply the purchase price for the threshing floor. The 600 is what David paid for the surrounding area all around it. He bought the place on which his son would build the first temple. And in the second temple, Jesus, the ultimate son of David, would worship This land was obtained 3,000 years ago. This notion of it being a modern thing, Israel has just taken it from people, is contrary to historical and biblical facts. You do not have to be pro-Israel, but I hope you're pro-logic and reason. Your emotions are good God-given things, but don't let them call the shots. Let objective facts call the shots. So... David buys this thing, and it says in verse 25, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. What moved God? A sinner's repentance and a sinner's prayer. The same stuff that moves God today. And when you believe that, you're a man or woman after God's own heart in spite of your sin. Oh, God, if I repent, you will forgive me. That's how he does it. Now, listen, David is shown, as we finish this book, for whom he is. Great man, sure, but a sinner nonetheless. But he's a sinner ready to repent, ready to cast himself upon God's mercy. May that be true of all of us. Now, in making these sacrifices for his people, David didn't realize this, but he foreshadowed the actions of Jesus the ultimate son of David, who also died sacrificially in this very area for his people so that an even more tragic plague could be stopped. What Jesus did, talk about a costly sacrifice, what the ultimate son of David did was meant not just to remove three days of pestilence, but a horrific plague. And here's the plague. To enter into eternity with your sin unatoned for. It's a plague. To enter into eternity with your sin unforgiven. Now that's a horrific plague. The ultimate son of David, as he's referred to in the New Testament, Jesus, in this same area, died. So that the righteous indignation and wrath of God do us would have been fully poured out upon him so that he could say on our behalf, on behalf of those of us who've accepted him, he could say, 
Father, forgive them. And he could say, it is finished. And he could say, paid in full. So the sinful man and woman, which we are, in spite of our sin, could throw up ourselves upon the mothering mercy of almighty God manifested through the sacrifice of the ultimate son of David, Jesus in this very place. And we could say, Oh God, I have sinned and sinned against you. Indeed. I did it because of human pride. I chose to do it. Oh God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that your wrath has been poured out upon the shoulders of your own son. Thank you, because of his shed blood, I'm clean. I confess my sin. I'll do the hard work of turning from it. With your help, I'll be able to do it. Strengthen me so that I don't do this again. And, oh, God, now let's get down the road together. And God pronounces you, just like David, to be a man or woman after God's own heart. When does temptation stop? Apparently not in your old age. David was getting old. He couldn't go out to battle. He couldn't see. Faculties are failing, and still he was tempted. Not by sexual stuff anymore, I suppose, for obvious reasons. But there was pride, and that thing is always knocking at our door, isn't it? Yeah, so we have to stay close to the Lord Jesus. And when we fall into sin, not if, when, let's do what David did. Throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. Accept the totality of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin in this very place. By the way, the reason why Satan has such an interest in this land is its holy land. This is where Jesus died. This is where Jesus is returning. It has nothing to do with Israel, for crying out loud. It's God's land. He can use it for whatever he wants to. He's going to use it for the return of his own son. A temple is going to be built there. You and I will observe Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles there. Don't worry, I'll tell you all about it. Just stay close to me. (laughs) that's important land. It has nothing to do with politics and all that kind of stuff. It's a spiritual battle. Satan wants what belongs to the Savior. That's the Savior's land. Satan wants it. He won't get it. I read the rest of the Bible. (laughs) Everything's cool. I hope you've thrown yourself upon the mercy of the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will find grace to help and mercy in time of need. Lord Jesus, thank you for being revealed through the pages of Scripture, old and new. We're looking past David. We're looking to you. We're looking to your greater sacrifice for our greater sin. Thank you, O God. Lord Jesus, for standing in our place, the burnt offering for our sin, the peace offering, enabling our peaceful communion with your father lord jesus sin is really not our problem is it you have a solution to it but in our sin of pride we won't take you up on it forgive us oh god help us to crucify our pride humble ourselves before you throw ourselves upon your mercy and grace and be restored in a right relationship with you just as david was because we want to be people after your own heart This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Lord willing, James next week.
May the 